Welcome back to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm seeking to shape a space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity charades and political pablum by giving voice to good, hardworking people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And hey, kids, I'm in Catalonia with Megs and Mads. First time a baby girl has seen the mountains. Did we sprint into the frigid Mediterranean? Naturalmente. How could we not? Yo, this is the first family vacation since this poopy pandemic started. And inflation be damned, we're having the time of our lives. And we're eating like royalty. Also, my liver hurts. Like legit. But speaking of eating like royalty, I get to grace four living listeners with another uptown hot tip from our pal Brad Newman at Cookies and Carnitas. Brad's been supporting this year's podcast by shouting out not his own restaurant, but the restaurants he respects in his hood, the uptown neighborhood in Chicago. And this week, Brad wants to give some love to Brass Heart. Brass Heart's a postmodern American restaurant on North Broadway Avenue, just like a block away from the Riviera Theater and the Aragon Brawl Room. They offer seasonal tasting menus, and my friends, their menus look insane. Also kind of insane, the wine pairings. Yo, they got a selection of Spanish wine pairings that reads like... (laughs) (laughs) Like the greatest hit soundtrack to my years living in Spain. Living in Catalonia? I don't know. Shit's complicated. What can I say? Maybe I'll say this. I linked to the brass heart in the show notes to this episode. And if you're Chicagoland listeners, you gotta click the link. There's a short video interview with the executive chef, this cat called Chef Norman Fenton. He tells you what's cooking at Brass Monkey. Oh, 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 and one of the owners, I just remember this, one of the owners is wearing a Skull and Roses 71 t-shirt in her website pic. So clearly, clearly these folks have taste. So if you got taste, click the link in the show notes, make a rezzo at Brass Monkey, and get back to me. Tell me if it's as good as it looks. And not one, but two For a Living listeners popped over to Beard and Belly. That's another uptown joint that Brad Newman recommended. And one of them DM'd me to say that the food was, his words, not mine, fucking balls to the wall insane. (laughs) But, but he also said that he split a Reuben and chili cheese fry with his boyfriend before seeing Mark Rubier at the Aragon Ballroom. Big ass mistake, he said. Big ass mistake. Yo, I'm no gastroenterologist. Not a fortune teller either. Could have seen that coming though. Definitely could have seen that coming. But I'm glad that you and yours like the grub at Beard and Belly Drew. And my condolence to you and your fellow Mark Ribier fans. Ribiet? Ribolet? Ribiet? I could have looked it up. Nah, I don't know that I care that much. I've never seen this Ribier fella. But man, I had so many awesome nights at the Aragon when I was a little dude. 
I remember being butts to nuts screaming for Lenny Kravitz in like 1990-something. I saw the Beastie Boys at the Aragon a couple weeks after I got my driver's license. I remember I couldn't parallel park on the way there. I probably shouldn't have driven out of there. Dudes, this is for real. Not making it up. At the Aragon Ballroom, I saw Nirvana, Mudhoney, and Jawbreaker in one night of my senior year of high school. Now, I'm not nostalgic for high school, but some of those shows at the Aragon and the Riv and the Vic uh, makes me swimming in nostalgia. Maybe drowning in it, because my memory is <laughs> just becoming like a huge garbage heap. But I have clear and fond memories of my guest on the pod today. For today, I'll be exploring the working life of a kid from my history class in Barcelona like 82 years ago. <laughs> my, my memory and my math skills evidently fading. But yo, I got a rising star on today. Sylvia Foster Frau was a kind, clever, and compassionate kid back then. And she's put those characteristics to work in her work as the multiculturalism reporter at The Washington Post. Now, don't get the wrong idea, my friends. My effort is not to reel the big fish onto this here podcast. Truth is, I wanted to sucker Sylvia onto the pod back when she was covering border news for the San Antonio Express. Woe is me, and good for her, the WAPO plucked her from Tejas, and lucky for me. And with tons of gratitude to her, she was still game to join me on For a Living. Now, I want to say this. If you're a regular WAPO reader, you, my friend, are in for a treat. But if you're cynical about the news, well, I think you're in for an even tastier treat. You'll see. You'll see. As you join me in conversation with Sylvia Fosterfrau. Sylvia Fosterfrau, welcome to For a Living. It is such a pleasure to have you with me here in conversation. How do you describe what you do? Hi, thank you for having me. So I am the multiculturalism reporter for the Washington Post, and I cover the way that our country's changing demographics affect everyday American life, racially, culturally, ethnically. I can't wait to hear more about all of that. But I, I, I have to ask, like, how did you get on this path? Yeah, that's a good question. So from a young age, I always knew I loved to read and write. That was both like the things that I love to do and also things that I had strengths on in school. And so I kind of always was pursuing or thinking that I would grow up and do something, hopefully with those two skills involved. At a young age, I had once thought that I would be a journalist without really knowing what it meant, but I knew it involved travel and I knew it involved writing and I loved like both those things. But as I grew up, I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll go into publishing. And um, But really, it was in college. I had an internship at Minnesota Public Radio. I had just kind of stumbled upon it because I realized that all the cool kids in college were getting internships in their summers. And so <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, I need to find something. My first summer, I, ended, I was like back in Galesburg working at the bakery. And so by the second summer, I was like, okay, Sylvia, you need to line something up for your career. Yeah. And so I just kind of started applying to all places that sounded interesting. And Minnesota Public Radio was one of them. 
and I ended up getting the internship and I had an amazing experience there. And I remember getting back from the internship. It was my first time kind of living on my own off in another city apart from college and stuff. And I remember getting back to college and like telling my mom on the phone, if I still feel this way about journalism, like I do right now, you know, I just felt like fired up about my whole experience. And I said, like, if in a few months, I still keep feeling this way, then this is definitely like the path I want to pursue in the career for me. And sure enough, like that feeling never subsided. And so I started just doing other things. I was at a small liberal arts school. And so they didn't have a journalism path or journalism classes. I was an English major, but I basically did things outside of that in pursuit of that. So I uh, freelance at a bilingual newspaper in Chicago. I got another internship, like all those kinds of things. I tried to find connections in journalism since my family didn't come from that world and I didn't really know folks from that industry. Right, right, right. And then my senior year of college, I ended up getting a Hearst Fellowship, which is a two-year program under the Hearst Corporation, which is a media company. And the first year was in Connecticut, working at papers there that were owned by Hearst. And the second year was San Antonio. And that was really where my career kind of started taking off was in San Antonio. Well, tell me all about it. What happened in San Antonio? (laughs) Inquiring minds want to know. Yeah. So in San Antonio, so I landed there. It was my second year out of college at that point. Or no, I had been one year. I had the first year in Connecticut and then was going on my second year and um, was an education reporter. And I remember too, like those first few weeks in San Antonio, like I was like, I could not believe how big of a newspaper it was. And I would like look at the numbers of readership and just freak out. Like I took it very seriously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I remember like walking into the newsroom building because we still had this old historic newsroom like right downtown I remember walking in and thinking like wondering if other people around like saw me walking in as a reporter for the San Antonio (laughs) Express News so funny um and I really loved it and I loved this one beat that one of my colleagues had he was an immigration reporter and at that time I was really interested in covering immigration I um speak Spanish fluently and in college had gotten into like immigration related issues and advocacy stuff around there. And so I was really interested in that topic and being able to use my Spanish and some of those kind of like cultural abilities I have. And so I started kind of helping out on stories related to that and was doing a lot of education stories that focused on English language learners and DACA teachers. And when that reporter, who I learned a lot from, left the paper and there was an opening, I was tapped to fill it. And that was like my dream job. And I actually took it the month before family separation happened. It was during the Trump administration years. And so you can imagine it was an extremely intense yeah. uh, first start at immigration sure. reporting. I was down at the border. There was just like constant news. It was really stressful because I was so new and just young to the beat and the industry, you know, but I learned a lot. And I also should mention, I covered a mass shooting in 2017. Like it happened just before I got the immigration beat. And that was like a big national news event where I got kind of my first taste of that kind of reporting too. And so both those things, I think just really 
not only just strengthened my skills and propelled my career, but also like profoundly impacted me as a reporter and as a person, you know, I, I just learned a lot from both of those experiences. I'm kind of curious what you learned. Like, what are your fondest memories of projects or pieces from your time at the San Antonio Express News? Hmm. Well, on the lighter side, I loved going into schools, especially when you were like writing on elementary and pre-K level, because a lot of times in journalism, you're writing about like bad stuff. And so it was always nice, even if you're writing about like a, you know, the defunding of a school or something, you end up like around small, cute children. (laughs) And so maybe I'm just nostalgic because I'm like covering difficult stuff now, but I'm like, wow, I really miss like those moments of levity and sometimes when you're when you're at a local paper you get to cover more like cute nice events you know that the community is putting on or like new nonprofits like stuff like that that I kind of miss yeah well one of the amazing experiences i had working at the san antonio express news starts with a very dark experience which was covering that sutherland springs mass shooting because i was there the day it happened on a sunday like just the police were still there, ambulance were still there, people were still like being wheeled out on stretchers and stuff. And I was given the space and time and was also just through my pure dedication, able to continue covering that community's story and their healing and recovery for like over a year after it happened. Mm. And one of the really gratifying things about that was being able to cultivate this really amazing relationship with this community that had previously not been fans of the mainstream press and especially weren't fans of the press in the immediate aftermath of this shooting. And so um, being able to cultivate that relationship and forming these strong bonds and getting to this place of like really intense trust where like to this day, if there's news from that community, I don't cover it anymore. But if there's news, they will always text or call me about whether I want to be the first one to report it. And developing that kind of bond and getting a chance to be a part of their most like intimate life experiences and moments, I feel like so blessed to have been given that experience and form that relationship with those people. And it was a really great learning experience for me as well. And so I just, I'm so fond of that time I had to continue reporting on them. I think a lot of times, you know, especially now that I'm working in national media, you go in on a tragedy, you cover kind of like the main questions of that day or that week or something. But at some point, like the news moves on, right? And so being in the position of a local reporter who was right nearby and given kind of the time to continue documenting that process for those people was like really gratifying. And it felt like I was doing good things. And I'm sure you were doing good things. And one of the good things you were doing, as you said, was to build bonds, to create trust, to foster community. And I I have a question about that because in this really fractured, polarized media landscape and in this cultural context, which I don't need to explain to you, you were able 
to forge bonds and to create trust. And I, I'm curious about how in your work you're able to do that. Hmm. Well, one, you know, in that situation, I had the benefit of being able to just be there and be present, which goes a long way. If you're able to enter spaces with your reporter hat off, I think goes a long way in showing like a dedication and care and like humanity to what you're doing. Apart from that, I think we could all do better as journalists with being more transparent about the work that we do and like quote how the sausage is made, you know, yeah, yeah. sometimes there's a lot of mystery or even like conspiracy around like how stories arise or how they end up. And so I always just try to be really transparent. Like I, I showed people like my notebook and like, look, I'm literally just writing down the words you just said. And then that's going to go, in a document on my computer and then that's going to go to print after an editor looks at it and a lot of times we'll even have conversations about it like I try to explain the process of like how I'm doing what I'm doing so they don't feel like they talk to me one minute and then the next minute like it's all online or on tv you know yeah so I feel like transparency can go a long way in trying to just show practically like what we're doing and what's happening this is maybe a more specific question. And I know we'll talk more about this later in terms of like covering tragedy. But when you were living in San Antonio and this was your community and the tragedy happened there, you had to interface with people who had just undergone serious trauma and they were hurting in, to me, still, like, unfathomable ways. And I wonder how you kind of approach people knowing as you do because your empathy levels are so high and you're so dialed in and you're so professional, how you approach them given the nearly impossible context Well, I will say um, it doesn't ever get easy to do those kind of calls or door knocks. You know, I've covered actually a number of mass shootings since I've covered that one and other tragedies like the Surfside condo in Florida and just a, a range of things at this point. And in many cases, you get like this feeling of dread before you go to make the call. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so hard to know that you have to confront these people and talk to these people who are in pain. Yeah. But I have found that a number of people are often grateful to get the chance to talk about who their loved one was what that person was, what they meant to them and to the world, what what we all lost, you know, because of this tragedy, because this person is no longer there. Mm. And that really kind of helps propel me. And I feel like when we can get on the same page where we're both saying, we want to tell this person's story, I want to tell their story, and you want people to know their story, 
like that's usually when you not only just have the best interviews, you know, but that's how you kind of open the door to an open conversation like that. And so I always try to make sure people understand that those are my motivations when I'm calling them or knocking on their door about, you know, whoever it was that they lost. Oh, it sounds so desperately difficult. I have kind of a nuts and bolts question about that. Mm-hmm. Do you have like a, an opening line, like you're going to do a, a door knock or you're going to cold call someone? What do you say? Oh, gosh, I don't have one that like I could like pull up right now and recite or that I memorize, but there are moments, right, where I have to make calls to like a list of like 15 people who have all been impacted, right? And so at those points when you're making calls or like we'll send messages through social media or however you're trying to reach them, I will kind of try to write out something. But it usually starts with like, I'm so sorry to be contacting you during this time. Like we both don't want want this to be happening because that means something terrible just happened, you know? Yeah. And then I usually just say, I'm a reporter and we're trying to tell the stories of the people who lost their lives. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to tell us a little bit about, you know, whoever it was that they lost. Hmm. And sometimes I'll even say, you know, I'm going to be as sensitive as possible if there are things that you don't want to talk about or don't feel comfortable with. Kind of like how you did (laughs) for me for this podcast. You know, I'm... This is very different, right? When you're interviewing victims of a crime or of a tragedy versus like a politician, right? They're very different (laughs) kinds of allowances that you give. And so I say, you know, like, you know, if there's anything you don't feel comfortable with, like we're just here to tell their story. And then I usually provide contact information. So it usually kind of falls along those lines. So since you brought it up, you know, you do have to, speak with politicians and police officers and police department chiefs and, and, and. And these are people who are trained to stick to their talking points and to tell some version, their version of the truth. And I don't say that to to be cynical and jaded. I'm, I guess I wonder how you elicit honest and thorough responses when you're talking not to victims, but to politicians and police officers, etc. Well, I'm still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> Doesn't always work. But um, I mean, having a relationship with that person, like if there's someone that you regularly cover and have formed a working relationship with, that can be very helpful because they might be willing to even give you heads up on like small logistical things like when the police report will come out or, you know, should we be waiting for additional information before we go to publish, you know, what we currently have. Like sometimes there's little things like that that can be helpful and elicit more of a a genuine response. Um, I think also just knowing a lot about the subject and showing that you're very like well-versed and well-read and like their world, you know, kind of all of these people that you talk with, whether they're from a specific agency in local office and, you know, working at a nonprofit on issue. Like if you, if you've really done your due diligence and research and show you're not 
you're also not just asking them because you want a quick quote, like you're trying to get down to the bottom of something and you've been really immersed in their world and their language, that can usually also go a long way because they take you very seriously then and think, well, maybe our standard line isn't going to work this time, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, when you go into one of these interview situations, whether it's face-to-face or on the phone, do you go in with a handful of questions? How flexible are you? How facile do you have to be? Yeah, so um, I usually do have a set of questions, at least a small list of things I know I have to ask, Um, especially if it's, yeah, I mean, if you're doing like an accountability kind of story, there are answers that you know you have to ask. And sometimes there's even questions that you know they won't answer, but you have to say that you asked in the story, you know, and say that they didn't answer. And so there's usually like a small list of those. And then apart from that, as people answer, as I think of things kind of in that context, in that moment, it'll come to me. Yeah, like usually those kind of pre-planned interviews like that, I have been doing prep work ahead of time with questions, with reviewing again, the kind of content, the issues at hand, what people still need to know, all that kind of stuff. Whereas like when I'm out in the field reporting on an event or covering a campaign or something, things are a little more free flowing where you're, you're kind of moving moment by moment and kind of have to take things as they are. But I do, I do like to let myself be free to ask questions based off of their answers, um, especially for more like human based stories, um, more creativity and opportunity for surprise. Yeah. One of the things I guess, you know, that I'm always conscious of and, and more like straight news stories is not coming with a predetermined narrative. So you have these questions that you know you need to get answered, but I also don't want to kind of assume that I know what the story is before, you know, everyone's voices are heard and given an opportunity to kind of express that. So that's really what I wanted to ask you about. Like, how do you do that? How do you have you know, through your own experiences, your own due diligence, your own hard work and creativity, how do you kind of cultivate an an image of a story going into an interview and yet remain open enough to fully hear exactly what people are trying to say to you? Hmm. How do I do that? I mean, off off the record, I'm fucking trying to do it right now. I mean, that... (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) how do I do it? You know what I'm asking, right? Like you, you, you have this idea, like I have this idea of like what, what it means to your job. I've been thinking about you a ton. You know what I mean? (laughs) Because like, that's what I love about the podcast. I just, my imagination runs wild about what it's like to be a journalist. But then like right now I already, like I'm feeling myself shifting you know like my narrative is changing as i'm hearing you and like you know what i'm saying like i'm wondering how you do that and what's hard about that yeah well there is you know if you're too open to the conversation i mean there's a chance of getting lost in it right and you get lost in like a totally kind of different track and i sure i've had those moments especially like starting out even more where you come back and you're like wait (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) hold on. 
that's not, uh, yeah, yeah. do I need to re-interview them? Like, how do you, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is, there is that fear too. Right. Um, and then you do have to have a great editor who is on board to the story that you originally pitched to them changing. Right. And most editors that I've worked with are good at that. You know, sometimes you have this idea in your head of what the story is, and then you go out and report it and you're like, actually, I was kind of off about that. My impression or my pre-interviewing that I did when I pitched the story did not actually fully capture like what is going on here. And there have been moments, oh gosh, I'm trying to think if where I could give a specific example, but like I've had, I've had moments when I thought, oh no, is this like not a story at all then? Yeah. You know, when you find out new information, you're like, oh, well, that's normal. So that's not <laughs> as surprising as I thought. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 And then you have to like either find something else interesting about it, which is what I usually try to do so that all my work isn't like totally fruitless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or you do just have to like kind of give up and scrap it, which is a very sad day when that happens. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Hey, when you were talking about this whole interview problem and, you know, how serendipity can help and hinder the whole process, you brought up pitching a story. And it makes me wonder, like, how, how do you do that? Like, how do you pitch a story? How does that work exactly? Yeah. So for a recent story I did as an example, we got a group together to talk about how the Latino community will be impacting the midterm elections and kind of the politics of the community. We basically decided at the post to embark on a number of stories about Latino voters. And so as an example for how I pitched a story, we started looking at different congressional districts and different parts of the country where there were large Latino populations. And I saw that in South Texas, there is a congressional race between two Latinas, one who is a Trump supporter and another who is a progressive Democrat, has been endorsed by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And so both are a very stark contrast to who has been traditionally elected in that area, which is kind of more conservative Democrats, like Democrats that play very moderate based on this idea that Latinos have conservative values when it comes to guns and abortion and some other things. And so I found it really fascinating because they both kind of embody these different strands of what is kind of the new Latino voting block, right? Like Senator Bernie, like when he ran for president, one of the big things out of that was that so many Latinos supported him, which was a surprise for this yeah, yeah. <laughs> older white guy. And then on the other hand, right, you have the rise and this shift towards the Republican that you see in the Latino community. And so that's like playing out in this pocket of South Texas. And so I thought, well, that's super fascinating. And if you went down there, you could report on how these candidates kind of are like a microcosm of these larger dynamics. And so that was basically me researching online these these districts and also having a sense of South Texas from having lived in Texas before. Right. And so having an understanding of the dynamics and the Mexican-American community and all that. And so then I mentioned it in a meeting and the editors liked it and then basically typed up kind of a paragraph with the characters in the story, if there was any kind of data to back it up or experts talking, and then usually like in a pitch, like why it's relevant now. I mean, this one was a little bit obvious because we'd been talking about 
kind of stories in anticipation of the midterm election. But usually you need a like, why does it matter in this moment? You know, like, why are we telling the story now? Yeah. And so I did that and it was approved. And then next thing you know, I was like off in Texas covering that race. So that's kind of an example of like how a, a story is developed. And sometimes it's also through talking to sources and we're talking about something else and they mention something else. And I write it down because it sounds interesting or surprising and circle back to it later and it becomes its own story. There's like a, a number of folks that I talk to regularly that aren't people who I'm actively writing about in a story, but are just people in the know who I keep in contact with because they tend to know when things are moving or shaking or have story ideas because they're like very well versed in one issue or topic. You have to cast a, a pretty wide net. I bet you're establishing quite a network of interesting people with stories to tell, aren't you? Yeah, you know, that's been one of the amazing things, but also challenges about this beat because I'm a national reporter and my beat multiculturalism is a very, it's a new one. They'd never had it before at the Washington Post and it's a very broad subject. And so when I first started, I was overwhelmed by kind of the possibility, right, that that encompasses because you're not in charge of covering a certain federal agency or a certain territory in the U.S. It's a kind of broader thematic beat. And so that took some kind of getting used to it. But in the end, yeah, it means kind of I have people in different parts of the country that are looking at different kinds of things. Yeah. You know, people who are listening close are picking up that you went from the San Antonio Express News to the Washington Post. And I would imagine, I don't know if this is true, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that the WAPO is some sort of a, a dream job for a journalist. I mean, there's all of these resources and you get to be in the heart of it all. I kind of wonder, though, what it felt like for you to transition from being part of this community in San Antonio. You had like a lot of skin in the game, you know, to working, as you described it, this, this national beat with kind of a new mission and being spread out all over the country. How did it feel to pivot from San Antonio to the WAPO. Yeah, well, you're definitely right that it was a dream job. And there were very few things I would have left covering immigration from San Antonio for. And like this was one of them. I remember even reading the description when the job description came out and being like, wow, you know, like what a great idea for a beat multiculturalism. I felt like I related to it on a personal level. And then professionally, this this chance to go to different parts of the country, you know, and see different walks of life and cover all these different stories. And like you mentioned, being in a news outlet that is just like hiring like crazy and growing and has all these resources. And I, I still like do not have a sense of like the scope of the Washington Post. Like I don't know everyone who works there. I find out about new departments all the time. I'm like, oh, we have like someone who handles election insights data. Like I didn't even know that was a job, you know, like stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but it's also exciting because then there's more possibility. Like if I were to get bored of this job or felt restless, like there's like all of these other teams that you could work with and things like that. So 
yeah, it's been um, very exciting and was definitely a big leap in my career. And yeah, it, it meant a lot to me to be able to go to this level, you know, and realize and, and just realize that I could do it, you know, like at first, the excitement was like getting the job. And then I was like, Oh, crap, now I actually have to like, yeah, yeah. like do it, you know, <laughs> like yeah, succeed yeah. at it. <laughs> <laughs> which was like terrifying and then now I'm I'm like oh you can do it Sylvia you you could do it and that's like really comforting to know I guess was there like some bona fide imposter syndrome at the start of all this oh for sure yeah uh -huh. how are you doing with that now you know, I'm good. Yeah, I don't think I have it anymore. I think I'm just a Washington Post reporter. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I realized too, like all of my colleagues were just like me, you know, I realized that journalists are kind of the same anywhere you go. And the, the basic work of it, the ethical guidelines, the fact checking, the process of journalism, of like doing journalism is basically the same, you know? And so you just get back into the mode that you know how to do and that's that. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing that you talked about that the Washington Post offers you for better and for worse is the opportunity to see the country. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what, life on the road is like for you can you maybe just kind of walk us through the the promise and the peril of life on the road as a WAPO reporter <laughs> yes so um hmm. the promise is you know the adventure kind of aspect of it getting to go to places you haven't been before meeting different kinds of people getting a chance to be a part of history sometimes, like covering the Chauvin trial. I was in Minneapolis um, outside the courthouse when Derek Chauvin was convicted of murder. Like stuff like that where you're like there for like this part of history yeah. is just like a really incredible feeling and makes me feel like really grateful for my job to be a part of it. Um, so that is definitely... Uh, an exciting aspect of the job the peril well <sighs> there was only ever one time that I can think of where I actually felt like my life was in danger and that was in northern Mexico we went to this migrant shelter where kidnappings had been happening which we found out I already knew when we walked in like you get that feeling like this is not safe. <laughs> and then um, after talking to some of the migrants there, learning that there had been like broad daylight kidnappings where they were held at gunpoint by cartels and stuff literally the day before we were there. Oh, yeah. And we like immediately left. Like stuff like that, you know, where you realize that you just should not have been in that place to begin with. That only really happened that one time. Yeah. Yeah, the peril is indeed perilous sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, but really not that often. The, the other downsides are just kind of petty stuff, like being in a hotel room, you know, for a long time and wanting to be home. <laughs> yeah. Or having yeah. to do expense reports afterwards, which are just like the bane of my existence. <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> 
we have to talk about this. Which hotel chain are you most loyal to? <laughs> Definitely Marriott. The yeah. Marriott's. Yes. Is it the breakfast? What is it? I do like the breakfast. I think there's just more. I get the sense there's like more variety and more options of them. Yeah, they have all the different types of Marriott's, right? Right. And like usually like the three-star courtyard type yeah. um, are like my jam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, I try not to do like the very nice expensive ones because I'm on someone else's dime, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it just kind of became a fallback. There are a lot of them at the border too. So when I started doing border stuff, like when I, when I started at the post, I was in San Antonio and still helping out with immigration coverage for them. And yeah, it was just kind of like a natural fallback. <laughs> what is your go-to continental breakfast first trip to the buffet? What do you, is it, is it Fruit Loops, Lucky Charms? Do you go for the make your own waffle? Is that a treat? What do you go for? <laughs> No, I usually, because when I'm reporting, I'm like, oh, you need like something that is, uh, will last you a long time. So I usually go for like a very hearty oatmeal bowl with like peanut butter and like anything else that I can do to like top it off and make it interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like an egg, eggs and like an egg sandwich. I think I've made like eggs and bagel combos before. And then obviously like tons of coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Do you thrive on coffee? Like my image of the <laughs> journalist on the road is just, there's always like a, a vente Starbucks in <laughs> paw. Is that close? Oh no, I'm so cliche then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I have a strong addiction to coffee, like yeah. morning and afternoon. And then, yeah, when I'm on the road, I feel comforted by having, even if it's, if it's like gone cold and I'm not actually drinking it, just having like a cup in my car is like, okay, you're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you write more effectively at certain times of day like how do you schedule yourself when you're on the road so usually when I'm on the road if it's for a story that doesn't have to be done like while I'm down there I'm just like reporting nonstop and then taking like a few hour time periods here and there to try to start catching up on my writing and like transcribing of the recording. So I'm not like getting back, which happens too often where I get back from a reporting trip. And then you just have hours and hours of recordings and transcripts that you have to like turn into a story. So I usually try to a lot sometime to get some of those recordings like transcribed and maybe even like boiled down to like the main quotes or something that I'll be using and go from there. But then usually like the reporting style is since we have deadlines in the evening that like in a quick turnaround daily story, as we call it, like you do all the reporting in the morning and then have to at some point switch to writing, 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 writing and turning it in. So then oftentimes you have to write at night after you've been on the road, having sometimes very difficult conversations, often having like intense engagements, and then you have to put the proverbial pen to paper. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oy. <laughs> That's hard. Yeah. 
I mean, what's harder to be honest is, and maybe I'm just griping because this happened to me recently where you're reporting the whole time and then there's like a break, like you either fly home or maybe you have to switch to another story before you can get back to writing. Cause you know, your schedules sometimes get all like, if, like when I was in Texas, I did like a couple, I reported for a couple different stories that still haven't come out. And so having to switch gears, but then come back to those intense interviews, come back to the original story and start writing. Like that's usually for me anyway, that's like my nightmare because then you have to remind yourself and put yourself back in that mindset and in that place and go through all of that stuff that was once like fresh in your mind, you know, and churn it all out. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds exceedingly difficult, even more difficult than trying to write at night. (laughs) Let's flip the switch if we can. I'm Mm -hmm. curious about office life and I'm particularly curious about Washington Post office life. I have an image in my mind and it has something to do with Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. Like what's office life like for you? And and what impact does working in an office among your colleagues and peers have on your work? Hmm. Um, so that's a tricky question because the pandemic. <laughs> Um, And so the office is not full of people. There are more folks coming to the office than, you know, at the height of the COVID pandemic, but it's still not up there, you know, where it was before. And who knows, you know, maybe it never will be. But I will say that was kind of the other thing I was excited about at the Post was being able to be around really talented and accomplished journalists and you know, the learning and absorption of the way they do their job and getting the chance to even collaborate with them on stories was really exciting to me. And it was exactly like I thought it would be, which is that they're just really damn good journalists, you know, that are that are just (laughs) super smart and well-informed and know what they're doing. And that has been really exciting. Yeah, it, it, it sounds exciting. And you have such a, an extraordinary team there. I mean, I, if it's not clear to you, I've been a pretty dedicated Washington Post reader for, for many, many years. And some of these people are real stars in, in my eyes. In mine too. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. So I think that's just awesome. And yeah, I should say in full disclosure, you you have long been a star in my eyes. I I think you're awesome, <laughs> and uh, you were awesome way back when in Barcelona, long time ago. Did I tell you I'm going back? By the way, no. In uh, just a few days, I am going back to Barcelona for the first time in years. Bringing the wife and my first time, my kid is going to Barcelona. We're going to visit your old stomping grounds and everything. Oh my gosh! How fun! <laughs> I haven't been back in so long. I'm jealous. How, when was the last time you were there? Um, five years ago on a solo trip, but I haven't been back with Megan. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, it's going to be a nostalgia trip. We're going to go up in the mountains. We're going to spend most of the time actually in Catalonia, going to the mountains, going to the sea. It's going to be the jam. Yeah. Super stoked. Yeah. So just another like office related question based on this starry eyed view I, I have of you and your colleagues, you work as part of a team at the Washington Post's America desk. 
And I, I was hoping I could get you to explore a little bit about how that team works and like how that teamwork informs how you do what you do. Yeah. So the team, as you mentioned, the America desk, the team is a group of mostly U.S. correspondents, which means it's reporters who are based in different parts of the country. There's a California reporter, Texas reporters, Florida reporter, that kind of thing. And then there are just a few of us who have more thematic but still nationally focused beats, like myself, that's multiculturalism. I have a coworker, Emmanuel, who covers race and ethnicity. And the kind of general concept behind that team is it's like an extension of the Washington Post's work that has traditionally been very focused on D.C. and the White House and Congress and a look at the voters and the people in the whole rest of the country. So the idea is that we're covering the people that are living everywhere else but D.C. and the way that that's shaping the politics that are happening at a higher level or the way that they're responding to or affected by those politics. And so that's why, you know, I travel a lot because I have to be where people are at, what's happening out there. And that's why so many of the other reporters on our team are actually based in other parts of the country to tell those stories out there. Do you all review one another's work? How often are you in communication? You know, teamwork makes the dream work. Can you talk a little bit about like how that team works and what makes it a team? Yeah, so we'll have weekly meetings where the U.S. correspondents, for example, will talk about what they're seeing in their neck of the woods and there might be common themes that emerge that end up becoming a story, you know, about something that's happening across the country or in several places or maybe it's just the West Coast or things like that, you know. Um, and also, like, if I have a story that I find that's in their neck of the woods, you know, in their coverage area, I might hit them up and ask if they want to team up on the story or even just pick their brain, you know, if they're not going to work with it on me because they're working on something else, then they can be a great resource, right, for some of the context of the place and the people. They might have phone numbers of officials that give me that I can call, like, things like that, you know, so... For me, especially since I could be anywhere in the country, it's very helpful to have folks who are there on the ground and can provide that context or understanding before I go down there. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And and it also makes sense to me that like you and, and your team, you're documenting a, a, a polarized and downright perilous time in America. And you interface with tragedy with a, a frequency that, uh, I mean, I just wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. In fact, like your work brings you face to face, so far as I could tell, with like one tragedy after another. And and you throw yourself into these horrors that uh, like a lot of us can like kind of hardly bring ourselves to read about like the Uvalde school shooting and then the, the, the racist attacks in Buffalo. And you talked about the Chauvin trial and you brought some of this stuff up, but I, I just wanted to ask you about this, Sylvia. I don't know. Maybe I need your permission to ask, but w with your permission, I think I just wanted to ask like how it feels to grapple 
with all of these tragedies and like how as part of your work you have to work to manage that that pain yeah so that's something i'm happy to talk about and talk very freely about and i guess i'll start by saying when when that mass shooting happened in sutherland springs and we were all like the newsroom was just morale was low and we were covering this horrible thing. And, you know, when you're in the local news, it's kind of all hands on deck. Um, the Orlando Sentinel sent our newsroom a care package full of food and even t-shirts and like little sticky notes that said like, we're here with you. We know what you went through. It'll get better. And that's because the Orlando Sentinel had gone through their local newsroom had covered the pulse shooting that, LGBTQ club in Orlando. And it made my day, first of all. And I ended up connecting with um, one of the reporters down there. And we were talking about like the mental toll that it takes and having to cover those kinds of things. And we actually started a Facebook group called Journalists Covering Trauma. And the idea was that, you know, traditionally in journalism, this has not been something that's been out in the open and very discussed, right? The issue of journalists' mental health even though there's a long been, you know, crime reporters, there's long been these tragedies, right, that reporters are basically, you know, one of the first responders on, like, you usually have police, EMS, and like, reporters are like, right there behind, if not at the same time, sometimes, you know, on those scenes. But we're not trained, we haven't been given like psychological training, counseling, there's no real infrastructure for like, handling that kind of coverage. And so we were kind of talking about that. We created that Facebook group to basically be a support group for journalists and also provide resources to each other and even just like practical things on how to cover these things. Because unfortunately, like it's almost expected at this point that a tragedy of that scale will happen in your backyard and you'll have to cover it. And so that has been really rewarding and it's grown now. There's over a thousand members, if not more, like it's kind of sad, I guess, like after each one of these tragedies, you get like a wave of requests from reporters, like wanting to join the group, you know? So it really has like been this growing club, I guess, of news outlets that have had to cover these mass shootings that have now extended to natural disasters. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's being more and more discussed about in newsrooms and talked about. And the Washington Post like has its own counselor that folks can use. I think it's like once a week to talk about kind of things related to coverage. I mean, right before I joined the Post was when January 6th happened. And a lot of the folks who were based in DC like covered those riots and protests and then really struggled with mental health issues after that. So it's definitely like a real thing. I, think I have been fortunate in having a very strong support network and hobbies and things like that, that have helped me kind of like stay afloat and not get too um, like affected, I guess, about the stories that you hear and the things you have to witness. And I, I will say too, for me, it's helpful to be writing about it in some ways, because you feel like you hear all these things or you're witnessing this horrible tragedy. 
but you're able to do something about, about it. You know, you're being productive. You're putting something out that you feel like is like some small contribution or way that might inspire someone else to become advocates for change so that something like that doesn't happen again. And I don't know if this is the case for everyone, for every journalist even, but to me actually being able to like put a story out afterwards feels like a productive way to channel some of those emotions that it brings out when you're having to cover them, if that makes sense. Oh, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, I have a lot of friends who ask me like how I am able to teach what I teach the way I teach it, mm. right? I discuss a lot of wars and tragedies, contemporary and historical, and that's a lot of my job is is grappling with profound injustices and mass murders and the like, genocides and all. And my kind of stock answer is analogous to the one that you just shared, yeah, it's hard, but it's made much easier by the fact that I feel like I'm doing something about it, right? In, in trying to create a space to share challenging dialogues in a safe space with my students, I feel like I'm doing something and that that helps to ease the pain and to ease the burden, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, exactly. You know, I, I don't want to focus on the, the tragedies too much. There's there's so <laughs> there's just so many of them and it's just so gut wrenching. So like besides like the, the, the racing to tragedies as they, they, they tear through America, you also write about culture and immigration, as we've briefly discussed. And just about a year ago, you published a project with a Washington Post colleague called Rachel Hatsipanagos. Am I saying that right? <laughs> yeah, basically. Hatsipanagos. Yeah. <laughs> say, say, say it for me. I think it's Hatsipanagos. <laughs> okay. I was reasonably close. I was in the ballpark. Yes. Oh, when, definitely. <laughs> when you two wrote that, I, I shared it with uh, a couple of students and a few pals. The, the piece is called Somos Latinos. And I just love this project. And, and I want to hear more about it. But for our listeners... With your permission, I just wanted to read a little excerpt. Is that okay with you? Yes, of course. Hispanic Heritage Month starts in the middle of September, a timing emblematic of Latinos' status in this country, occupying a liminal space in the American psyche, viewed as too foreign to be American, but too American to be foreign. Ni de aquí, ni de allá, from neither here nor there. And you go on to say, and we are diverse. We eat different foods and wave different flags. We span the spectrum of skin color and religious beliefs. Some of us are immigrants, while some of us have ancestors who were indigenous to this land and never left. We call ourselves by different names, Latinos, Latinxes, Latines, or we prefer to be specific. Boricua or Chicano, Dominican or Venezuelan American, while light-skinned Hispanics dominate depictions of Latinos in the U.S. and Latin America, Black and Indigenous Hispanics have been calling attention to deeply-seated issues of colorism within the community. And we're bonded by a shared struggle for recognition and representation, by a sense of both pride in our ever-evolving sense of Latinidad and controversy 
over whether the label itself really serves a purpose. And by the acknowledgement that while we see the differences among us, we're often treated as if we're all the same. The Latinos we spoke with for Hispanic Heritage Month expressed a pride in the particularities of their heritage and upbringing and a connection with the large and thriving Latino community of which they're part. They talked about their individual senses of identity, their collective struggle, and their visions for future generations of Latinos who will be solo de aquí, only from here. This piece is absolutely fantastic. I love everything about it. <laughs> I could have just done a whole podcast with you just about this project. Maybe we can start here. How did this project come about? Tell me the Genesis story. Yeah, I'm so glad you like that piece. That makes me really happy. Um, it, it's kind of a non-typical article in the sense that there, there was no news that happened that prompted it in like the more traditional sense of the word. But basically, it was Hispanic Heritage Month. And my colleagues approached me about doing something for Hispanic Heritage Month that Rachel, she writes a newsletter called About Us, which kind of explores race and ethnicity and demographics in the U.S. And we started talking about like ways that we could try to represent Latinos. You know, on the one hand, you feel almost kind of like trite by writing about something just because it's Hispanic Heritage Month. Like Latinos shouldn't need like a month for them to like be written about. But at the same time, it offered like this opportunity to really explore Latinos' place in the country. And um, she's, I believe, Cuban-American. I'm half Puerto Rican. And so we basically kind of put our heads together and talked about all the different kinds of people that we could talk to. We won a range of folks from their backgrounds to where they live in the U.S., to their skin tone, to, you know, where they speak Spanish or speak English, like pr basically to really encompass the diversity of what is the Latino community, which is comprised of like people from, as you, you know, this intro mentions like so many different types of foods and traditions and nationalities. And we wanted to write like an essay kind of in the beginning. And it's not traditional. If you're not kind of in opinion or in a magazine, in the magazine, they really rarely let you write in first person or first person plural. But when me and her started writing it, it felt almost odd. Like you're two Latinas, but you're saying like they and them and like literally yeah. pouring like how you feel about yourself, but pretending it's like other people. And so yeah. finally, I just wrote it like with we and it just felt more natural and like everything just flowed out. I felt like when I was writing it that way and I sent it to the editor and she was like, oh, I actually think that that works. Let me just make sure that, you know, we get it cleared or whatever. Um, and obviously, you know, it worked and we published it. But yeah, it was it was really nice to get a chance to really highlight the community and talk about its place in the country and just kind of lift up both the the things that we all share and love about the community and then also 
the struggles we face both as Latinos, but also within the community, right? Like some of the references to like the colorism and stuff like that. And we, we wanted to just, you know, be as sensitive as possible and make sure that all members of the Latino community, I guess, felt represented and heard. Yeah, it's awesome. It's such a tour de force. I'll link to it in the show notes. I, I have just one more question about it. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about the Latino communities from researching and writing so much Latinos with your colleague, Rachel? You know, one of the things I've thought a lot about with the Latino community, and that's kind of extended beyond this piece, is kind of our place and our role in the country especially in recent years with the protests for racial justice and the Black Lives Matter movement. And I've done a lot of interviews with members of the Latino community for this story and for many others. And there does seem to be this general sense that the Latino community, you know, the community wasn't a founding part of this nation's history, the way that the white immigrants and the black slaves were, right? Like they don't fit necessarily into this legal and historical dynamic that the United States has in that same way between the white and black demographics. And so I think there's still a lot of a sense of like wanting recognition from the Latino community and struggling to figure out like, well, where do we fit in this narrative, you know, in this racial narrative of the country? Where is our Brown Lives Matter? You know, some folks will blame their own community and say, well, we are not being active enough. And some folks say, well, we're not given the space to be heard as our own block of people of color. Even the fact that Latinidad is an ethnicity and not a race. And so even on like a lot of official forms, the, the way it's separated out, like you check a race and then you check if you're Hispanic or not. So like Hispanic isn't regarded as a race, which then confuses data, which then makes it hard to produce like information. Like I could go way into this, but yeah. you know, like there's, there's a real sense of that, that I've gotten with the Latino community. I'm not sure what that means for the future, like where that's headed, you know, the, the census is showing that the white population in the United States is decreasing and the brown population, the Latino community is really what's been growing in great numbers. Um, We make up almost one in five of the population, nearly 20%. And a lot of questions over what that means for the community going forward as it grows as just like this fast growing, large voting block in the country. So, Sylvia, the, the, the Latino community or the Latino communities, if you prefer, are very much misunderstood. And, of course, uh, the more our readers read your work, the more understanding <laughs> they'll, they'll accrue. <laughs> but there's a lot of misunderstanding there. And I also think that journalism is very much misunderstood in the United States. And I wonder what you wish more readers knew about your work, about journalism. I wish 
more readers understood the depth of research and fact checking and policies, like ethical policies that we have in place that have been kind of the tradition in journalism in this industry that goes back for a very long time. That there is a professionalism and a really baked in code of how to produce journalism, how to produce accurate factual news that I think has been lost on the public. That, you know, I hear from, I hesitate to call them readers, but more like haters, yeah. <laughs> hate readers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> though I swear half of them don't even read past the headline, um, yeah. that really don't seem to grasp just how like time worn and, and also just how much effort and work we put into making sure that what we put out is accurate and true. And so I wish people just had a better understanding of that and that like as a journalist and my colleagues, like we really come from a place of feeling like it's a public service mission to inform people about what's happening in the world and what's at stake and how it could affect them in their lives. And that's a very genuine reason that we're doing what we're doing is like we actually are hoping to make a difference in our way through our medium. So I guess I just wish people understood that we have all of these sort of policies and stop gaps and commitments in place to report the truth and to report as fairly and accurately as possible. And so I look forward to a day where more of that trust can be restored between the public and the media. Here, here. I look forward to that day as well. And and I have to say that that response you gave was so pitch perfect and it's so earnest. And I think that like there's a tone to your writing that I would characterize as as such as as pitch perfect and earnest. And and I really admire what you do. And I know that along your path, you've learned a lot. And and I wonder what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned about, about journalism in the past few years during which you've committed yourself to this noble enterprise? Well, first, thank you for your really kind words. And I guess one of the things that I've learned about journalism, I guess more, it's more a process of understanding or thinking about something is that one of the kind of main tenets of journalism has been objectivity. And I've really been thinking about that concept and also challenges to that concept when it comes to journalism. And challenges, I mean, like arguments saying uh, basically kind of against that idea necessarily in journalism because the industry has long been, well, it initially started as a predominantly white male field, right? And then over time, women were included. And then over time, people of color have been included. And the industry as a whole is still not on par with reflecting the society that we live in. 
And obviously, you know, you want any workplace to be diverse and reflective of the community, but especially in journalism, there is an added layer of responsibility because you're also putting out narratives about the country and the community, right? So if you're putting out, you know, narratives about crime in predominantly people of color neighborhoods, um, it can obviously have a very big impact on those communities. And so one of the critiques of this idea of objectivity in journalism is that when you have a white dominated or male dominated field that's creating these stories, like they're kind of determining, right? Like what is, what are the big stories? What is the story? What is the angle? Who gets included in those stories? And as soon as you involve different kinds of people, right? Like what's considered the story and what's considered the angle changes, right? Because you're getting these different perspectives. And so I've really started thinking that maybe the best way of describing journalism isn't that all of these reporters, all these people, right, who are reporters are objective, have no opinions, have no, you know, are just putting out objective facts. I think I've come to believe that a better way of talking about it is that we are accurate, topmost, fair, also extremely important, and that we go through kind of an objective process when we're reporting, right? That we're going through a process of looking at all the sides of an issue and talking to people from experts, to the folks in power, to the people that are on the ground that are affected by it. And that by going through an objective process, you're putting out a good piece. And I, I guess I just say that because it's, that's been on my mind a lot is thinking about journalism and really the importance of having diversity in our newsrooms and that translating to like much better nuance and coverage of like all of the different kinds of communities in the United States. Did that make sense at all? <laughs> it made perfect sense. And I understand. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. it's hard to stay neutral on the moving train. And then there's this Venn diagram of neutrality and objectivity. And you operate in this media landscape, which in addition to, you know, being increasingly distrusted is really reshaping its voice and the means via which it expresses itself, right? There's the pivot to podcasting, and there's so much, you know, multimedia journalism that's happening, and you get to reach the whole world with your work. And because it's global, and because it's multimedia, and because we live in increasingly polarized times, if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is what it means to be objective and how we grapple with the goal of objectivity is changing. And I think in this way, kind of like the pavement slabs are burning loose beneath the feet of a lot of journalists who really have more themselves in, with an almost religious fervor for objectivity, which remains the objective, if you'll excuse the pun, but it's, it's hard and you have to like rethink it. It sounds like you're thinking very seriously about objectivity. That was well said. Yes, that's exactly what I meant to say. Mm -hmm. And you said it, you said it, we're good. <laughs> I, I'm just saying back to you what you said to me. It's a steep climb and 
I can't imagine anyone more suited to take that climb than you. I think you're the cat's pajamas and I'm, <laughs> I'm crazy about you. And I love everything about our conversation here. And that should be enough. But <laughs> if only <laughs> before I let you go, I'm going to have to ask you to share a couple stories. Could you please share the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure? And if I could ask you to begin with the failure so we could end on a note of triumph. <laughs> uh, okay, let me think for a second here. Take your time. I'm here. Okay. Finally getting to this glass of wine I've been waiting for. <laughs> So one professional triumph that comes to mind, again, back in my coverage of Sutherland Springs, it, it was triumph with a failure inside it. Okay. <laughs> so I got an interview with the wife of the gunman. So he stormed the church, killed 26 people with an AR-15 style weapon, injured 20 plus others in this small country church ran off in like a high-speed chase and killed himself and his wife who he has two kids with he actually killed her grandmother I believe and that church had been her church those people were like family to her and I was going to interview his wife and it was a really big deal in addition to the photographer, she also brought a video camera. We were doing this whole video interview with her. And so I had to ask really hard and difficult questions about, you know, this woman who the father of her children was a mass shooter and killed her closest family and friends, you know, 26 of them. And it was a really tough interview, too, because she um, there was a certain level, I guess you could say, of domestic abuse going on in the household. They shared a phone and he would give it to her if she ever wanted to make calls. He had to drive places everywhere. He really kind of secluded her and kept her at home from the community. And there was this kind of strange dynamic where she would kind of praise him or lift him up as this amazing father on the one hand and then flip and talk about like, you know, how horrible it was. And so she still very much was kind of under his spell in a way, right? Like the kind of spell of, of being loyal to him. And so it was a really difficult interview and very emotional, intense. And we had the video here and I realized afterwards <laughs> I thought like it, at this time, like I didn't know if I would ever get an interview with her again. Like this is your one shot, like your one time to really make it. And we we're going to have this big kind of video spread with my writing in interspersed. And we found out after we left the interview that throughout the entire time that the video was on, I was like making noises like I was like mm -hmm, mm, uh-huh yes uh-huh like because I was trying to show that I was like engaged and listening to her and like processing what she was saying and it just ruined the whole video like you just hear me <sighs> say mm, mm -hmm. <laughs> it was horrible I felt so bad <sighs> and everyone was stressed and frantic about it like what do we do what do we do and it was like all my fault you know um, luckily 
she did agree to do it like again, essentially, which I felt terrible about too. Like, you know, it's, it's a lot of work for the person that you're interviewing during these kinds of things. Cause you're dredging up like all of the tragedy, all of the trauma, you know, bring it up to the surface again for my interview, for my story, you know? So you already feel like you're asking so much of these people and then now to ask to do it again, it was like really mortifying and embarrassing. Yeah. The good thing is that we were able to obviously do it again. And I was proud of how the story came out and like the way I tried to balance like her love for him still with what he had done. And so that kind of, I guess, answers the triumph as well, because that was a story that I was especially at that time in my life and career was very challenging for me. And I felt like it ended up being successful. I read that story. I actually thought about talking about that story on this here podcast. It was indeed a certain triumph of journalism. You have every reason to be proud of it. And now I got a little inside scoop on it. And that is, um, that's pretty cringy there, Sylvia. Pretty, <laughs> pretty cringy. Yeah. And I should mention too, like, I feel like there's a taboo about mentioning corrections, but I have had corrections on my stories. Like the last correction I had was that I got the name wrong, like the last name of a person wrong. I felt really bad about that. That was really dumb too. Cause the name, the last name I had put was like someone like, like it's someone that I knew like from another story that I had just <laughs> written their last name and not even thinking. So there are also corrections, which people should know, like, like it's the worst feeling in the world when you realize you got something wrong in a story, like the worst feeling because you put all this effort into producing this thing yeah. and you put it out in the world and you're so nervous, then get excited when it's received well. And then when you find out there's something wrong, like, oh, it's just, it's the worst feeling. And then you have to live with that little line at the bottom yeah. that says, you know, <laughs> the name, the name was incorrect and we had to include her full name blah 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 and it just will live on with that forever <laughs> it's rough it's rough on yeah. the ego it's rough on mm -hmm. the spirit i feel it you. is i feel you it is. <laughs> hey i'd love to let you run but i was hoping you might be able to recommend before you go to our listeners just like something that illustrates or influences your work an endorsement of sorts perhaps it could it could be anything so I covered the Uvalde tragedy in Texas, and I wrote this story about how Uvalde, which is a small town in rural Texas, it's like, I think it's either 12 or 15,000 people. But in the 70s, it was the site of a student walkout that was part of this larger Chicano movement for uh, Mexican-American rights in the Southwest. Um, and... Uh, after the Uvalde shooting, this area that has had extremely low voter turnout, I'm talking the man who was elected to city council, who was kind of embroiled, he was also the school police chief, was embroiled in the scandal, won with a total of 125 votes, 125, 126, not by, like, that was the total number of people that voted. So just to get a sense, like, it's an area where basically you kind of get this sense that many people just kind of gave up on politics, gave up on civic engagement, just kind of like you keep your heads down, you do your work. It's a predominantly Mexican-American town and you just kind of go through life that way. And one of the amazing things that I was 
really excited to see and be able to report on is that the children and grandchildren of folks who had once been active during the Chicano movement, they had kind of basically passed the skills or at least the glimmer of an idea of how to be an activist down to their kids and grandchildren. And those are the people that were coming together and starting to demand change and speak out to authorities after this mass shooting, holding the um, leadership accountable, holding the Texas law enforcement accountable. And one of those outgrowths of that kind of activism was a newspaper, and it's called La Voz de Uvalde. And it was once a Uvalde bilingual newspaper that then went defunct, and they revived it um, after the tragedy, and it includes voices of some of the parents of the victims, and it's in bilingual English and Spanish, so it really caters to like the 80 plus percent of the community. And it just is like this homegrown community newspaper that is kind of part of this larger movement of accountability. And I just thought that was really beautiful because so much local news across the country has been shrinking and gone through a lot of hard times. And so to see this other outgrowth of activism and accountability and wanting to kind of lift up this community that has not been engaged and I, I just get the sense has not really stood up for itself a lot of times. And being a part of that change in this small town in Texas is, was just really amazing to see. And so I like checking on levels now and then and seeing what they're writing. And I just feel like it's a really great example of like great things that can come from tragedies. What a splendid endorsement. We will link to the Lavos newspapers in the show notes to this conversation. <laughs> Sylvia Frau, it has been such a pleasure to reconnect with you, to share space with you, to be in conversation with you. You are still the cat's pajamas, and I am so grateful that you made time to be on the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for your kind words and thanks for the really great questions and conversation. I really appreciate it. And there you have it, my friends, my conversation with Sylvia Frau. Remember what I said, if you're a WAPO reader, you got your treat. And if you're cynical about the news, I hope you're a little less cynical because I know that Sylvia is not the only earnest decent, hard-working person with the beat at the WAPO. Sylvia's pretty amazing, and I had a pretty amazing time with some of her classmates from the Benjamin Franklin International School in Barcelona while I was here. You know, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I wonder if I made the right move leaving Barcelona and coming to Berlin. That was a tough call, for sure. But if I didn't leave Barcelona for Berlin, I wouldn't have met, drum roll please, my next guest on the For a Living podcast. I'll be exploring the working life of a booking agent with Artists Group International, Max Vick. That's Max with two X's, by the way. Pretty awesome. He's pretty awesome. I'm thrilled to be able to share that conversation with y'all. So be sure to tune in in two weeks. And between now and then, please take care of yourselves. Be healthy. Be well. Breathe a little bit, y'all. 
I say that because I'm just learning how to do it. I actually read a book about it. It's called Breathe by James Nestor. Highly recommend it. It was a game changer for me. Wait, what was my point? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be good to yourself and breathe. And I'll see you next week. Ha, ha, ha.